Consequence Podcast Network. What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Hi, this is Mike Score from A Flock of Seagulls, and I'm giving you the story behind the song on Consequence. Welcome, listeners, to the story behind the song. I'm your host, Peter Chotty of Creative Media, and my first episode of the new year focuses on one of the quintessential songs that defined the new wave era and transformed the music scene in the early 1980s. The classic track, I Ran, by one of the era's defining bands, A Flock of Seagulls. I Ran is a song that immediately spread its wings around the world at the time and continues to fly today. In fact, the band is now celebrating its 40th anniversary with a new box set. But equally iconic, of course, was the band's look, especially that seagullian hair. It's a look that delighted back then and continues to be burned into our collective psyches today. Mike Score is the man who started it all, wrote the songs, played those synths, and fronted the band. Mike discussed all of it with me, and I think you will enjoy this journey led by a creative artist who made a lasting, multi-dimensional mark on music and pop culture. So take a listen as we dive into the story behind the song with Mike's score of A Flock of Seagulls. First of all, Mike, that song and those albums, they really helped to define a generation, and it's really great to see you today. So thanks for joining me. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. So, Absolutely. Uh, First of all, let's get into just a little bit, briefly, before we get into Iran, uh, talking about how you started the band. Yeah, I, I was in Liverpool, and I, I used to go see bands when I was about 14. I used to sneak into pubs and stuff like that. I got into the kind of fashion scene a little bit. So I, I ended up doing people in bands hair, you know. So once I got to know a few musicians and stuff like that, I, I was like, you know, these guys are not any different to me. You know, I could probably do what they do. I wanted to be in a band. So I went to see them and then I met one guy and he said, I'll teach you how to play bass, you know. So he came to my house with a bass and he played a scale and I watched him do it. He goes, now play that scale. So I did it, and he goes, "You're a bass player." <laughs> and that was that was the only lesson I ever had in music. So <laughs> there you so, go. 
After that, it was just a case of me and my brother getting together. I had a cheap bass and he had a bunch of cardboard boxes that he banged on to be drums. I ended up joining a band and that band was a band called Hamby and the Dance from Liverpool. They got a record deal, but they didn't want me. So I was told, go off and write your own songs because you're actually so different to the band you're in, you don't quite fit. Because I was uh, into spiky hair and crazy clothes and they were more like the, more like Echo and the Bunnymen looking. At yeah, yeah, of course. So, you know, me and my brother went off and we started just playing and I started writing songs and stuff like that. And uh, Frank, the original bass player, he came along and I was like, you know what, I'm bored with bass. And Frank goes, well, I'll play the bass then, you know, because to me, synthesizers had just come out. And that yeah. was where I was like, that's what I want. I want one of those things that makes all those weird noises. And you, um, By the way, Mike, were you influenced by Gary Newman at all? Yeah, I was influenced by anyone that had a synth from Genesis through Gary Newman, through Robert Palmer, through Pink Floyd, through, you know, I even looked back and I went, wow, the Beatles had a Moog, you know, yeah. they had one of yeah. the first Moogs ever. So I started to listen to a lot of how they used it. I realized that since you could bend them to anything you wanted, because, you know, a guitar is basically a guitar. It depends on the effect you put on a bass as a bass and drums are like that. Uh, this was, you know, before drum machines and stuff. So to me, a synth, because I couldn't really play anything, was was much more like playing with plasticine. You know, you could bend it and twist it. And right. You could just go, that's a so, great sound. You know, weird sound like that. Right. <laughs> so uh, yeah. so I became a synth player. <laughs> well, one-fingered synth player. <laughs> well, it's, it's yeah. pretty incredible. So you were a hairdresser. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. In Liverpool, you were a yeah. hairdresser. Yeah. And, and so... I have to ask you because it's such a part of pop culture. Obviously, the song is part of pop culture, but got to ask you the story behind the hair. When we were rehearsing and stuff like that, usually we would rehearse for a few hours and then we'd go out to a club, you know, and the fashion in Liverpool in them days was to be very glitzy and sparkly, you know, um, yeah. especially the, the the places we were going to it was it was pre-new wave and the new wave stuff was just starting to to form so we knew that we had to look great otherwise people would just go yeah you're not in a band you don't look like anything you know so we looked at people uh, that had great images obviously david you know david bowie and uh, even yeah. alice cooper you know brilliant imagery for what he was doing you know absolutely fitted perfectly Bands like Zig Zig Sputnik, you know, incredible look. So we decided that we had to look great. And, and being hairdressers, that, that was the thing we could sit in all day and, and experiment with, you know. So we did a lot of that. And, and that look eventually developed just simply by Frank putting his hand on top of my Ziggy Stardust and flattening the middle and the side stayed up. And that was that accidental? Was that intentional? It was just like, hey, let me look in the mirror, you know, so scoot down a bit. At the same time, you know, because it was, it, we were in the mirror, my manager was just simply going, hey, you guys are late, get out on stage, you know, go, go. So I didn't have time to fix my hair. I walked out and started okay. playing. And yeah. all through the set, I noticed people like looking at it and pointing at it. And um, when we came off, you know, we were talking about it and, and it was like, you know, people are noticing that and, and it 
and Frank was like, yeah, it looks great. Like it looks better like that than it did as a, you know, a Ziggy Stardust kind of thing. So I just decided then that tomorrow night when we're playing, I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> you know, I'm going to just stick the sides yeah. up, let the front right, fall right, down. Right. And over a couple of weeks or a couple of months, it developed into much, much more of a style, you know. And that became the thing, especially when MTV started talking to us. It was like, are you going to do your hair tonight? Well, it wasn't, are you going to play Iran and Wishing in Space Age? Are you going to do your <laughs> hair? So <laughs> I'm like, anything that gets us noticed. Well, I, understandably, which came first, the name of the band or the hair? The name of the band. Originally, we were called Level 7, but some other stupid band came out and called themselves Level 42, <laughs> which yep, was sure. many yeah, above our seven, you know. Um, right. So at the time, I was into the book Jonathan Livingston Seagull, um, and uh favorite band was The Stranglers, and then they have a song where they yell out of a flock of seagulls, right? So we went to see the Stranglers. We're in the front row, and Hugh Cornwell, he just yells out a flock of seagulls from the song Toiler on the Sea, and he points at me, and it was like, I've just been given the new name of the band by God on stage there, you know. So yeah, we went back to our rehearsal after that show and wiped off level seven and wrote a flock of seagulls, and it stuck. So... If the name of the band was already there and then your bandmate put his head on top of your, or his hand on top of your head and then moved up the sides of your hair with to be wings, it's almost like it was divine intervention. Yeah, we used to say, you know, it's like, you know, the dominoes are like stacked up like this. And if you get one yeah. right, it knocks the next one down and the next one. And that's what was happening to us. Things happened to us by accident, but then it was a whole row of things that happened, you know, and it, everything seemed to happen to be good. You know, there wasn't one domino that fell down and it was, oh, what a bummer. It was always like the next thing hit on and it was like, oh, now you're going to go to Europe. Now you're going to go to America and now you're going to yeah. do this or you're going on tour with, you know, with this band. And so, so for us, it was a constant creeping up you know all the time um our image was growing because we were getting more confident in what we were doing we were playing yeah bigger places so more people were coming and you know in, in those days between say 79 to 82 when we first came to america the growth in the band was was everything as far as you know, musically, we were playing better. We were looking better. We were feeling better. We had fans now. And, you know, when we first started out, people just used to laugh at us, right? So we were just like, well, they're laughing at us and we can laugh at ourselves because we didn't expect anything, you know? So, uh, well, understandable. But, but you seized the moment and look what you made with it. You, you, you created this, um, really this, this wonderful part of culture, pop culture at the time that continues on. I just want to go through a couple different things that I'm, I'm, some of you out there who are listening and watching know and some that don't. So the band song, I ran in particular, and then of course the style and the hair are fundamental parts of, in TV culture. So in Friends, Ross, yeah. <laughs> everybody, one of Ross's, one of our favorite characters, there's a big reference to that in Friends, and you did a performance 
on Glee, that great show too, where you sang the song I ran. Um, in film, Pulp Fiction, X-Men, The Wedding Singer, these were all, uh, you had uh, yeah, express yeah. references to, to you and the songs, which is wonderful. And even, and I didn't know this, that you were one of the, uh, I ran was one of the key songs in Grand Theft Auto, the video game itself. Yeah, apparently it was the, the voted the number one song in that video game. And that was the number one video game at the time. So it, it, another one of those, you know, we didn't really think about it. It just happened. It was another, you know, another domino going down and falling on yeah. our side. And of course, you know, we were real happy that, that, um, <laughs> even if it was such a violent game and stuff like that. But to us, it wasn't a violent game. It was like, look at all these people now can hear our music, you know, because this is the biggest game in the world. So everything like that, we just accepted. No, absolutely. You know? We didn't turn around and go, oh, don't do that. Well, and hopefully you had some good royalties that flowed from that too. But all of these things kind of build on each other and continue the keeping these great songs in the zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. I ran was released on your first full-length album in 1982. And what's really interesting about it, because it was a top 10 smash everywhere, but apparently in the UK, it was not. Nope. So in your homeland itself, it wasn't as popular as it was all around the world, including the United States. We were different to what was going on in England at the time. So we didn't care what was going on in England. We just wanted to do our own thing. And in England at the yeah. time, bands seemed to be somewhat political, you know, and that we wanted to be as far away from being political as possible. We wanted to be more entertaining than political, you know. Yeah. I don't care whether you vote Labour or Conservative or whatever it is, as long as you like our band. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So, yeah, we were more into the entertainment, the look, Um so we got we got slagged off a lot for that in England, you know, because they wanted bands to be political statements, you know. Um, but we weren't worried about it, and then we got the chance to go to America. And I think America, partly because it's so big, and partly because you can, you know, there's you can be a different thing in America. You could be heavy metal, you could be hip hop, you could be country. And there's room for all of that, you know. Um, in England, they tend to be, if you're not in what's fashionable right now, then you're not going to get anywhere, you know. So although we didn't really expect to take off like we did, once we got to America and started playing to the college kids and stuff like that, they loved us. They were just like, these guys are great. They look like spacemen. They sound like spacemen. They're doing space songs. You know, let's all get stoned and, <laughs> and go into space, you know. Um, and we enjoyed that too. We loved the American, um, the way Americans were. They were very, uh, you know, giving towards us. And they, you know, in England, we'd do a gig and people would go, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, okay. And then nothing. In America, we do a gig and kids would come up and go, let's go to a party. <laughs> you know? So they Absolutely. they would take us out. We'd get in at six in the morning and we'd go, those kids are crazy. Let's go to another one tomorrow night. <laughs> you know, So it was just so much fun to come to America and play. Just if you could take us back to your first inspiration of how that song came to be. Well, 
we were rehearsing and we had this piece of music that we just would play over and over again and it had no no nothing it was just uh, let's play that you know little chord sequence and stuff like that so we we were like that with that for a couple of weeks and then we were trying to get a record deal with a local liverpool uh, record company so we went to their offices and you know they had teardrop explodes they had echo and the bunny man they had all the like cool bands from liverpool you know so we went there we played them a couple of demos and they were just like yeah, you guys sound good but we don't know what we wouldn't know what to do with you because we do this click you know and you're over here somewhere but on the wall they had a picture of two people a guy and a girl running away from a flying saucer that was coming through the clouds so that picture stuck in my head and i started to formulate a story about these two people i changed it a bit so instead of running away with a girl the girl in the flying saucer was chasing him but he was scared and he ran away she grabs him with a laser beam and you know sucks him up into the flying saucer the rest of the guys in the band thought that was a bit crazy but we didn't care in those days it was just like okay you know sing that for now so i started singing I wasn't even the singer in the band, you know, people we were looking for a singer. So gradually that song just started to form around that idea uh lyrically because once you get a few lyrics it takes you to the next step, you know. Okay, let's play that part again because I can sing that now. And then we're like, you know, to Paul, Paul, you know, fill in the bits where there's nothing going on, fill in the bits and he came up with his little delandle like, you know, things, little launch pads and all of a sudden, you know, we started to play that as a full song and we were like where did that come from i mean in reality although we all worked on it and threw our bit in all of a sudden at some point we're like this song it's finished it's it's now talking to us i have this belief that songs don't get written by people they're already there they tell you what to do and you just do it if it's a lead guitar part the song goes hey put a lead guitar part in you know and it kind of happens naturally and i ran was so much like that and it felt so much like we're all doing the right things for each other the part that you do i'm doing this and it's the right thing and and when you stop and i sing that's perfect it's like as the room so i think for us it was almost the first what we would call perfect seagull song you know and we knew at the time we did it that it was if not a hit it for us it was something special you know because it yeah. it, it it leveled us up you know from messing about a lot to suddenly wow you know this is a, where did this come from who wrote this was it us but it's so weird how you just get a couple of ideas and then it all suddenly swirls around and pop out comes the you know the the arrangement the vocals the the way it was and the atmosphere of it and from once we'd done that once it started to be what we looked for in the next songs you know we had plenty of songs where it never reached that point so we dumped them and we like let's move on it's more important that we we move on and, and take whatever this is and i think the second one after that was space age you know which ah. which which to me leveled up even further you know it, it took us to the the stage above iran you know it sounds like you first were playing with some melodyish 
elements. You you were playing with student. You had certain things, and then you saw the poster and were inspired there. Lyrics started flowing from that, and yeah. then it, it kind of evolved together. Is that right? Yeah, because I would go, okay, I, I walked along the avenue just to try and set up what was going on. You know, you'd reach that point and then someone would play something that they hadn't played in it before and you'd go, yeah, keep that. That That's great. You know, keep that. And then you yeah. go, okay, so now I can I can go, I never thought I'd meet a girl like you or something like that. Or you'd go, oh, I got that other line now that I can fit in there, like Aurora Borealis, <laughs> something like that. By the way, how did how did that come to you? You see movies like Close Encounters, you know, and mm-hmm. th- they do this stuff as, like, you know, all the colors and the, the the clouds and all that stuff. And because I was into sci-fi, I wanted to put some sci-fi words in there. So somehow I just popped out with Aurora Borealis and it just fitted, you know. And um, I think I, even I was surprised when it fitted because I think we were just messing about and it was just... Aurora Borealis, and, and it was like, it worked. Oh, my God, it worked, you know. So, uh, okay, leave it in. It's in. I want to get into the vibe in the studio a little bit, but we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with Mike's score of A Flock of Seagulls. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at So, Mike, when these elements that we were talking about were coming together with the band, who was the producer? How did that happen? And and just tell us how the sound came together in the studio. Um, well, you know, we had, we had a certain sound when we played. Luckily, we ran into Mike Howlett, who became our producer. And in, instead of him producing us in the way that do this and do that, and let's set this part, he guided us how to get our sound onto a record you know because a lot of the time we were pretty rough the way we played things you know and we wouldn't always repeat the same things you know because in rehearsal you don't need to you can just wander off into some crazy little area but mike was kind of like you know when you rehearse maybe you played it like that like i thought it was great can you play it like that again and we were like yeah 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 and, and so he would guide us in the parts that sounded like it was going to make a record, you know, because we'd never made a record. We didn't know anything about it. And luckily, we also had Mike Shipley, who was an engineer, became one of the best engineers in the world. And he also never said, you can't use that sound, you know, because it's going to overdrive the desk or it's going to do this. Whatever you guys do, we can record it. So we felt really confident that even if we were pots and pans and banging and stuff like that, he would get it the way we wanted it. And between the two of them, they made us feel really comfortable recording. I think when you look back at the album, you're actually seeing the band, you know, at at its best, sounding like that's how we sound. You know, I mean, if you've been to see us live, I think we sound like that. You know, some bands don't sound like their albums, but we do, you know. So, and it was a really 
nice atmosphere. There was never a moment that I remember in the studio when they were like, come on, get on with this, do this, do that. You know, it was always like, hey, are you ready to do it? And we'd be like, yeah. I wasn't a singer. So they just used to get, say to me, just go in and sing for an hour. I didn't know they were recording half of it, you know. <laughs> but over a couple of weeks of singing the same songs over and over and over, they started to, I started to sound like a singer and they started to record the way it fitted into the songs. Yeah, interesting. There was no attempt or no real interest to try to change the sound or it doesn't even sound like there were significant, I, I don't want to take away from the contributions they made. So I don't mean it this way, but there weren't, there, there weren't significant additions or augmentations to the song itself, the way that you all had imagined it yourselves. It was more just shaping it um, and, you know, making it sound great for a record. Yeah, right? that's, uh, yeah the, that's the way I remember it being. I don't remember ever them saying, we need to edit that part out or do this. Well, yeah. In fact, you know, when I wrote Wishing, it was like nine minutes long, 10 minutes long. And the only time anyone yeah. ever said anything about that was, if it's going to be a single, we got to cut it down. You know, so I had no yeah. choice, really, because you couldn't put a nine minute single out, you know. So it was like, OK, well, cut it down and let me hear it. And when I heard it, I went, yeah, it's a single. <laughs> When you were recording Iran in the studio, do you remember, is that something that took many different takes? I think it took a few. I think basically what happened was the first couple of times we recorded it, they were still working on the sound. And eventually after messing about making the sound on the desk and all that, this was way before digital stuff and Pro Tools where you could just change stuff. And I think eventually after a couple of weeks, it was a case of, you know what, we've got this, got your sound now. So now we get serious and you have to go in and do it. Maybe maybe it was like the sixth or seventh time we did it, but all of a sudden it was alive, you know? Interesting. And if I recall what you were saying correctly, did that define the direction from the band in terms of your ongoing so sound? Like I say, I, it was the first time I remember everything coming yep. together and we all kind of went, that's us. That's That's our sound. That's the way we are. And we finally all realized that, you know what I mean? It was like, because before it was kind of like, I'm going to hit this drum and I don't know if it fits and I'm going to play this. Hang on, I, I haven't got a sound yet, you know, and stuff like that. But that was the first time that everybody had it right. So it was that level up and it was like, we need to do more of that. We need to. So, yeah, it was that first step to being a flock of seagulls the real thing, you yeah. know what I mean? While we were mixing, Mutt Lang came in and he basically just stood there and listened. He went, this is your big song. He was in the studio next door and he would literally come in and sit with us while we were doing the mixing. I remember Clive from the record company, who owned the record company, he said to me, he goes, Mutt loves that song. He totally loves it, you know? So um, we knew then if he liked it and we liked it, Everyone else is going to like it. You yeah. know? Knowing what he was, who he was, and what he'd done, for him to say that to us was a real like, wow, you're going to make yeah. it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? that's, a, that's a great thing to have Mutt Lang at the time come in and say those kinds of things, for, for sure. So when yeah, yeah, when the brilliant. song was finally got out there for all of us to hear, did it surprise you how it became, uh, I would imagine, fairly quickly, 
such a global hit. Did that surprise you? When it got released, we weren't sure that it was our best song because we'd been playing it for so long now that excitement edge had gone off it for us and we'd moved on, you know, we'd gone into Space Age, we'd gone into a few other songs. When we recorded it, we're like, yeah, it sounds great, it's brilliant. But it didn't get released, I think, till about a year later. And it was, a, to tell you the truth, when you first release a single, it's quite scary, you know, because you think you've put all this work into it. And literally, when you go, this is me, and people might turn around and hate it, you know, so it's quite scary. But um, yeah, when we when we put it out, and it started to get recognized, and our gigs went from you know, 500, blah, blah, blah. And we ended up on tour with the police, you know, to 50,000 people a night. Well, then people knew that song and loved it. And to us, it was just, it was spectacular, you know. And it was almost like we'd gotten so high as far as the band goes. It was like, don't look backwards because we're a hell of a long drop if we if it doesn't work, yeah. you know. And it went on for a couple of years with Iran, just everywhere in the world, just peaking up. You know, hit number one in Australia, all over South America. It was it was a huge hit. Of course, in America, it was a huge hit. And it was just like this thing is never going to let go, you know. And even today, it's it still hasn't. No, let it go. hasn't let go at all. It it, it is part no. of the zeitgeist. How did it change you personally? Obviously, I. I grew some kind of an ego, you know. <laughs> I look back and I, I don't think I was that bad, really. I got, maybe got a bit arrogant and there was certain things that I wanted to do that managers didn't want to do. And, you know, I thought that there were certain things that directions that I wanted to go in with my character, you know, the space boy and all that. And, uh, People started to talk to me like, oh, that's over now. You've got to be something else. You know, like Madonna's changed, so you should change. You know, like, uh, and I was like, I don't think we should change. I don't think we've even really started yet. You know, it's it's like the first hit. and We've met the album's a hit. Looking back at it now, there were things that I should have been a lot stronger about. And there were, there were times when I should have listened a lot more to people giving me advice but you know when you're a, a big hit and you're a, an icon kind of star you don't want to listen you just want to do what you want to do if i had my time again <laughs> i'd just do what i want yeah, to do <laughs> right 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 <laughs> it's got to be a, a very strange and i would imagine somewhat frightening change of a life where that isn't the case anymore you've become so big so fast that you're out and about and you're always recognizable and people are always trying to track you down did you enjoy that or did you not enjoy that there were times when it really worked in your favor you know i think bon jovi sent us a bottle of champagne once because we were sitting and he was like um if it wasn't for you guys we wouldn't have broken through ourselves because they were considered new wave to their their genre of music you know there were other times when you'd be walking down the street and people would pester you and you'd just not be in the yeah. mood you have to learn to switch it on and switch it off you know who you are and what you want to do and there were times when i didn't want to go out ever never go out and, and there were times when i didn't want to go home yeah you know? i would imagine
a lot of people live in denial because they think that to be realistic is to be depressing. I'm Dr. Mike, host of Going There. It was the first song where I wrote about how I felt like my depression was killing me and I didn't want it. Going There breaks the stigma of mental health issues by having real honest conversations with your favorite musicians, including Alessia Cara, Lizzie Hale, Jewel, Jason Isbell, Gerard Way, Lauren Gray, Shamir, and Barty Strange. There was something there that was so raw where I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would say that. Let's go there on Going There with Dr. Mike, brought to you by Sound Mind Live and the Consequence Podcast Network every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back with Mike's score of A Flock of Seagulls. Uh, and Mike, I didn't ask you this. So you were looking for a singer uh, at the beginning, and then yeah. you found yourself becoming singer. How did that feel, and did you immediately feel comfortable with that? No, nah, I'm still not comfortable with it. <laughs> what happened was we had this song, and I can't remember which one it was, and I, I think the lyrics or the singing should go a bit like this, so I sang it, you know. And I was like, yeah, when, once we get a singer, I'll sing that to him, and he can do it properly, you know, or whatever, she can do it properly. And Frank just went, but it sounds good when you do it. So I was like, no, I'm not I'm not the singer. I'm the synth player, you know. We looked around. We kept looking around, and I kept doing the part. And eventually, everyone in the band just went, nobody's going to do it like you, so you, you're going to have to do it. And I was like, I can't do it. I'm too shy. I can't go out on stage and – I want to be at the back and hide a little bit. Yeah. So once we'd done a few gigs and I sang and I got confident, I'm like, no, shove me right at the front. Well, you certainly can't hide <laughs> when I you can have be. the hair like that, too. You cannot hide. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, and uh, I didn't say I was a singer. I, I said, I'm the vocalist, uh, yeah. you know, because that's kind of <laughs> – and then gradually, now people say I'm a singer, but, you know, yeah. I still get a bit uncomfortable with it sometimes. If it doesn't sound right to me in the monitors or something, you know, I still kind of go, oh, I wish we had a singer, <laughs> you know. But most of the time now, I, I, I like singing. People expect me to, to chirp up. Even in new songs, they look at me as if to go, got any lyrics, you know? <laughs> right. So what is your okay. favorite Flock of Seagulls song? Uh, Space Age, closely followed by Wishing. Okay. So what yeah. song of any song from anybody do you wish you had written or recorded? Maybe Hey Jude. Huh? Something like that. Yeah. That was a you know. nice little song. A <laughs> nice little ditty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. What would you- well, in a way, mm-hmm. I was just going to say, I made Wishing nine minutes long because of the ending of Hey Jude. Ah. You know, I'm like, if that could go on and on and on and on, so can Wishing, you know? What are you most proud of as a musician or as an artist? That I still do it and I still write songs 40 years later. Because, you know, I thought it would last a year, two years. But I still enjoy it now. I still love writing songs. I write songs every day. It's my favorite part of the whole thing. It's it's writing songs, then playing live, then recording. And, you know, when you write a song, you get a real feeling of accomplishment. And you've released something inside you, you know. And to me, that's awesome. So on that note, if Iran didn't happen and the album didn't happen and you didn't get to live the life you have as a musician for 40 years and continuing on, what do you think you would have done as a profession as you, you know, from becoming, from being a hairdresser in Liverpool? I would 
probably still be doing music in some way. Mm. But, I mean, even, you know, as an amateur, do it at night with a, with a bunch of guys, you know, uh, have, a, have a band. But I wouldn't particularly want to go and do like a cover band or anything like that because I like writing my own songs. And I think my hobby would be my own little world of songs, you know. Even if I was a, you know, a burger flipper or something like That's that, nice. I wouldn't know. <laughs> Thankfully, I've never had to think like, yeah, no. what shall I do now? <laughs> Another thing is that I never chose to be a musician. I think it chose me for some reason. And I think that's why I still enjoy it so much is, is because I didn't, you know, luckily I didn't have to work towards it. Yeah. It more or less came towards me, you know. And even at times when I've thought, I'm tired of this, I want to quit, you know, somehow in the next day or two something happens and I'm back in it, you know what I mean, to back to where, you know, because there's plenty of times you finish a tour and you're so tired and exhausted, you just go, I, I never want to do that again. But then you get a phone call that says, hey, you want to go to Hawaii and play? And you yeah. go, Hawaii, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> I'll go. That's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Mike, what is your so, most memorable moment as, a, as an artist? One of them was walking out at the Hollywood Bowl. You know, I'm a big Beatles fan, right? So I went to the Hollywood Bowl and I went and stood where Paul McCartney stood. And then I went and stood where John Lennon stood. And then, you know, George. And then I went and got on the drum rise and went, Ringo was right here, you know, doing this like 50 years ago or whatever it was. So that was really memorable. And then playing at Madison Square Garden, which was such a, a big, scary gig until we walked on stage and the cheer from the crowd was just blew us away. And, it, you know, because you walk out there thinking, oh, my God, there's 20,000 people here. What if they don't like us, you know? But then you walk on and they cheer and you realize they all there to see you. Yeah. They all know your songs. All you have to do is give them what they want, you know? Right. And it was brilliant. What is your favorite, who, who is the favorite band or artist that you toured with? Uh, touring with the police was really good. Touring with the Go-Go's was really good, but in a completely crazy way, you know, because we, we never knew who the Go-Go's were until we met them playing at a stadium, you know. And they like uh, to have fun. Yeah, <laughs> crazy fun. Um, and one of my favorites was actually, uh, I was a big Cars fan. Oh, and love we did the a Cars. Show. Love the Cars. Yeah. We, we went up and played a show with them in Boston, and it was great. And then I did a, a few shows with Benny Orr before he died. Yeah. And, uh, and that, was, to me, was, you know, I actually made friends with Benny Orr, who was like my superhero before I ever joined a band, you know, before great I ever started. Great voice, great voice. Oh, man, yeah. And he was such a, a lovely guy, you know. And then another one of my favorite bands, The Stranglers, mm -hmm. you know, really aggressive punk rock, you know. And then I met Hugh Cornwell, the singer, and he's the sweetest guy you'll ever meet in your life. And we became friends. So it was like, you know, I'm hanging out with my heroes here, yeah. you know, and it was brilliant. But they, you know, there's an old saying, don't ever meet your heroes, right? right? You might be disappointed. 
but I haven't been disappointed yet with any of my heroes. So, uh, uh, you know, long, long live rock and roll. It's like, (laughs) keep meeting people. (laughs) So what advice would you give your 25 year old self? Be more attentive to what you're doing. Be more, um, confident, be, be more, uh, like plan a bit more, if you know what I mean. Plan like, you know, because we were kind of a bit haphazard. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, we've developed our look almost accidentally. You know, we developed our sound with a few accidents along the way. Learn more about the business side of it. You know, the music side is the excitement. The business side is what you need to hold you up, you know, as you go through it all. Because there have been many disappointments, you know, from the business side, you know, because every band gets ripped off in some way. So you need to know if you fall over, you know, what what you're going to land on, you know. So that I would say, learn about finances, learn about costing, learn about how to run a business. Uh, the, The only problem with that is that then interferes with your creation. Yeah. You know, and I was always more like, just leave me alone and let me write a song. Right. You know? and, and, then it, and then you go, oh, what happened to all the money <laughs> you know, that that song created? Yeah, and but, which is such a, a tale as old as time when it comes to rock and roll. Um, yeah. I think that's yeah. great advice to, to young people in, in general, which is pay attention yeah. to the business itself. Yeah, yeah. Give your creativity 75 80% but realize that behind that if you're being uh, successful in any way there's an, a machine behind that that needs oiling you know that needs looking after and and taking care of and you know how that machine works so technology and well space age and technology was always part you know synths things like that were yeah. always part of your sound and but now there's a sudden immediate realization in pop culture about the power of artificial intelligence. In artificial right. intelligence, there's something called ChatGPT that I'm ChatGPT that I'm very focused on right now uh, because it is insane. It's not just AI as we've seen it. It's 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 something right now where I could in natural language say, okay, write me lyrics that are about this, 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 and this, and in three seconds it will spit out. Uh, and, and I could say based on or inspired by these songs and we'll spit out lyrics. Right. And, right, and, right. and ask it to rhyme or whatever it may be. So how do you feel about technology and artificial intelligence? I think basically I'm just going to ignore it, <laughs> you know, because I want to do what I want to do. I yeah. don't want to say to a machine, write me a song because where does that leave me? It doesn't leave me feeling fulfilled, even sure. though it might be, you know, it might be a great song. I mean, to me, that little bit of a struggle you have in a song before you break through into that song and it starts to blossom, um, that's, to me, that's the excitement. You know, in the future, big stars might just go, well, you know, I told my AI to write me a song about cow horns or something, you know, and it and this is what came up. So I'm a great writer because I inspired this AI AI to write this. Well, that's the future. I'm not bothered about that. That'll be a different world altogether. You know, it's kind of like when we were using synths and all that, you know, what were blues bands doing? They were still 
playing the blues, drums, guitar, bass, you know. They didn't care what we did. So I'm not going to care about what the future of music is because that's not inside me. That's yep. for people coming around this way, you know. Like I don't look at the blues and go, oh, I should have learned the blues before I did anything. Yeah. That's for the blues people, you know. The yeah. AI is for the AI people and this is for the seagulls, <laughs> this middle bit. So, Mike, you have this, um, again, you have your 40th anniversary box set that's coming out in mid-February. So this is perfect timing for everybody out there. It's it's available for pre-order. You're also going to be recording new songs with the band, which is wonderful, and can continue touring. Is there anything else that's really important to you that you focus your time on? Being at home with my wife, we have a, a good laugh, you know. So, you know, I'm just a normal guy normal boy i'm just a boy don't think i'm a rock star you know just because i write a song and you go wow what a great song i write a song and i go okay i've written a song okay let's go out for, mm, get some chips <laughs> <Let's go out. laughs> yeah it's not that's not a bad life either you know so no. so mike Listen, great to have you. Thanks for joining me on the story behind the song to talk about the story behind Iran and just about your life in general and your journey that you had. It's a fascinating one that continues to really delight people from around the world. And we look forward to your box set and everything like that. But Mike Score from A Flock of Seagulls joining us on the story behind the song. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Let's hope you need to know about other songs in the future. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I, I, I want to get into Space Age Love Song and right. wishing. <laughs> okay, cool. Great Thanks for having you. me. That was Mike Score, lead singer synth aficionado and songwriter of the great 80s band of Flock of Seagulls, sharing his story behind the band's classic 80s track, I Ran. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotti. P, C like cat, S like Sam, A like Apple, T like Tom, H like Harry, Y like yellow, and at creativemedia.biz. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. And make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.